Hey guys, welcome back to Teen Muscle Radio and episode number 30. So today we are very lucky to be joined by Mark Coles. And Mark, if you don't know him already, is an awesome, awesome guy. He's the director of M10, which is a gym in Nottingham. He also himself specializes in physique coaching. And he also delves into both the training trainers side of things. So he he gives great advice to trainers who coach physique athletes and trainers who also coach general population clients. And he also takes a lot of athletes to stage. Now, something that that for me personally really, really stands out about Mark is the fact that he's on sort of a non-stop pursuit to always improve his self-development in terms of always looking to gain that little bit of extra knowledge, always looking to learn something from someone else. And, you know, if you if you sort of see how many people he's learnt from and how many seminars he's been to, it's, it's absolutely crazy. Um, so I'm at, I'm really honoured to have the opportunity to speak to you, Mark, and, and thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And, and to be honest with you, um, these podcasts give me an opportunity to just share where I'm at right now. There's a lot of people that talk on topics that haven't really changed, and I'm one of the coaches that is very happy to um, say how methodology changes. Yep. You know, we all know with research when stuff comes out, it changes our thought process. Um, but if we're not continually learning, we're not continually developing our our, our methodologies, and uh, we've all got to be prepared to be. Um, adaptable right so uh, one of the things that I'm always trying to do is to just teach people the best way to train um, and ultimately how you know one of the most important things to me is to be able to make a, a difference to the fitness industry and help trainers become better at delivering their craft and uh, uh, it's not just about knowing stuff it's about being able to deliver that stuff too absolutely yeah I agree like I said there's something that stands out about you is like you, you, you'll you be prepared to say okay actually what I said back then was, was, was potentially now sort of wrong and I'm moving on to something else um, whereas a lot of coaches will be very stuck in their ways um, and that's potentially why they, they, they sort of stall in their progress but yeah let's get stuck into things so today we're going to be talking primarily about sort of advanced bodybuilding training we're going to get stuck into sort of some different more sort of advanced topics that in other podcasts we might skim over but today I'm hoping to really get stuck into into those topics so first sort of question I wanted to cover Mark is when it comes to allocating training volume for a specific individual we know that we want to sort of get to the point where we're still sort of recovering and being able to progress so we're almost at the point where we're at our maximal recoverable training volume is a term or a phrase that we kind of use for it right now. Now, what I'm interested to hear from you is how is your approach in terms of slowly or progressively getting someone to that maximum training volume? And how do you sort of monitor that, the data that you receive from people in terms of knowing when you've pushed it enough, if you get what I mean? Well, I think first and foremost, the most important thing is, uh, as everybody knows with me who follows me and, and understands what I go through, it is we can't look at training frequency and training volume. We can't look at all the fancy stuff until we've nailed down how to train. Yeah, for sure. And when you nail down how to train, when you nail down how to train, you can't really lift a lot. Mm-hmm. 
And in the days, if you can't lift a lot, the ability to do more frequency is going to be high because the damage on the body is not very high. Yeah. So I'll, t- I'll tell you this. In the early days of working with anybody, and I say early days because training age to me, if the, you know the term training age, right? Training age is how long people have been training. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a difference to training age. There's a, there's a training age of execution. Yep. So tra- a training age of how long you've been doing it right. Mm-hmm. Now, on my Insta story today on, on Instagram Live, <clears throat> I, I, I really delved into this topic a little bit. And we were talking about if, for example, you have somebody in an off-season who um, ha- their, their arms tend to fill up, right? Okay. And they look fuller, right? Yeah, 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 they go, yeah, yeah. I love my off-season. My arms look great. And then when they come to diet down for a show, their arms look like a bag of shit. They look like a little bit of twig, twig hanging out at the end. I've been there. My arms are growing now, now, but they're nowhere near where I want them to get to. But the point about this is if you're not stimulating a muscle during the training session, it might fill up during the off-season because of water into the cells and cell volumization from quantity of food. Yep. But if you're not stimulating the muscle, you're not having a chance of growing it. So you can train that free frequently three four times a week to make it grow but if the muscle's not working and you're not executing exercises right it's pointless mm-hmm. so what we tend to do is like people can say they love volume they love volume what what most people miss out is this early phase of training so going back to your point which was you know how do you gauge the point of when somebody's able to do enough well the point when able someone's able to do enough is when their muscles shut down to a certain extent so let's say for example i take somebody through Three sets of bicep curls on a preacher curl, right? Okay. They're able to really keep the tension on the muscle. They're able to lift a little bit more during the session. Then I say, right, now we're going to go to a cable overhead curl, right? Mm-hmm. When they do that cable, cable overhead curl, they can't use an appreciable amount of load without losing form or having a drop-off. Okay. That's your, that's your total volume during that session. You cannot maintain tension and strength on the muscle for longer than seven sets of of biceps. Mm -hmm. Now, if I can go on for longer and maintain that level of strength, then that's great. Now, if, like somebody said to me this morning when we're talking about beginners and progressive overload, and I know we'll get into this, but if you can't lock in and keep tension on a muscle, you don't have any right to progressively overload it. Therefore, if you can't lock in and stay within a muscle, you don't have any right to do more volume. Yeah. Okay. So in the early stages with anybody, your right to do more is determined by the amount of load you can maintain, the drop off, and the amount of tension you can place on a muscle. For sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Absolutely. I think that, that, that that's a really, really good point in terms of just bringing it back to basics before people can progress is a lot of people forget that the stimulus matters and your stimulus is the execution of the exercise and and how well you perform it and well we're, we're trying to re- we're trying to recruit muscle fibers right we're trying to look at those look at those fibers and, and the actual contractile elements of them yep. and if the contractile elements of the delts are taken over when we do a bicep curl then we're, we're not stimulating the biceps yeah. so ultimately Ultimately, you can you can give it all that in the gym and say, Jesus, my biceps had a good pump. Listen, we can stand with a, with a shopping bag and get a pump on our biceps. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they're going to grow. So ultimately, we can drive we can drive blood in, but whether we're having an impact on the contractile fibers is a completely different matter. Yeah, yeah, definitely for sure. I think you know how would you in terms of, I guess, 
making sure that people are are training correctly would you say that one of the best things to do would be you know initially in the initial stages of of getting into training would you say that investing in someone to coach you the movements correctly would be a really advantageous thing to do as a young trainee 100 percent. you know what i've got a young kid with me at the moment who's 19 he's sitting at about 92 kgs and about seven months ago he came to me for uh it, basically, he was bought for his birthday present two hours of training with me. Nice. And he literally turned up so pumped, but wants to bodybuild. Mm-hmm. I was like, Jesus, mate, you, this is the thing that should happen. Like, he, he knew nothing. He'd been training. Uh, he wanted to grow his chest. He wanted to grow his back. He obviously wanted to improve his physique overall. And I said, right, you know, if you come and see me once every two months, once every month, if you can afford it, whatever, uh, let's go through these phases. This guy is just entering into just a four-week cutting phase to drop a bit of body fat sure. so I'm teaching him the foundations of manipulating his nutrition mm-hmm. and he, he now knows how to recruit his chest properly stabilize his scapula properly recruit his lower lats properly and so he's going through an education phase now look at it like this if somebody goes skiing and somebody just has not had one lesson they spend the whole week falling flat on their face yeah. they then again they go again in this Christmas time and they fall flat on their face they they don't get the most out of that experience because the experience is actually flying down the slope. So you can say for the first three times you go skiing, you're flat on your face. Mm-hmm. When you go to lift weights, most of the time you just effectively flat on your face because you're just lifting weights, but you can spend the first three months to a year making no difference apart from getting fatter. You know what it's like. Bodybuilders get fat before they learn how to put muscle on. Yeah, no, I do agree with that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they learn how to get fat. And I'll tell you, this is funny. We've all got to go through it. So, you know, if you've got somebody that thinks that shifting big weights is the way to go first off, they'll snap something before they learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, the, the problem is we live in an ego-driven sport. This is an ego-driven sport. Testosterone is flying around. To lift a dumbbell press properly with your chest would probably require 14 kg dumbbells. Mm-hmm. But you're lifting 28-30 because you go in in the evening and you don't want to – you know, this? I'll tell you this is quite funny. I train – you will have heard of the gyms in the country that have got a boxing ring in them? Yep, yep, yep. Right. Okay. So I train in one of them, right? And with a body, with a guy's in a gym, what's what's the thing that's most uh, uh, visually stimulating to a bloke in a gym of how masculine a bloke is is how much muscle he has, right? Or how much, how weight much weight he's lifting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you have these martial artists in the gym, they're not very big guys. Uh-huh. So in between a set of weights, you know, they're giving it all the boxing moves and high kicks in the middle of the weights area because that's their only way of showing to you that that's their masculine side. It's been fascinating to see because. <laughs> In, in a gym, you've got guys that are like, unless I'm lifting big weights, I'm not this macho man. So what we have is these people in the early days of lifting weights just throwing weights around. And I'm like, guys, not only will you not – you'll get injured, but not only that, but you're not stimulating any tissue. So in the early days of any lifting, every single person should – Take the advice of any sport, anyone that does sport, anyone that does anything, learn the foundations. And learning the foundations, as I'm trying to do with my education program, is to have more coaches in the UK able to deliver that level of education because bodybuilders think that personal trainers don't know anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's true because the, most trainers are not in good shape. Mm-hmm. So why, why would a 100kg bodybuilder go and see a, uh, uh, an 80kg personal trainer to help them lift because they want to go and see a 110 kg bodybuilder. Yeah, the reason, yeah. uh, no, 
true, right? So yeah. the problem you then go and you then go and ask another guy who's a bodybuilder. He's only a, he's only a bodybuilder. So it's all guy, right? Yeah. Exactly. So this this bodybuilder in the gym goes fucking. Hell, I've got a, sorry, excuse my friends. This guy's in the gym's got a lot of people asking me questions. Why don't I start charging forty quid an hour for people to ask me questions? And then instead of getting certified in knowledge, he then starts charging. And then you've got bodybuilders who aren't actually qualified teaching something which they don't know how to teach. Yeah. Yeah. So what we what we going back to with what you said to not make it too crazy long winded mm-hmm. is every single person lifting weights, which is why I put my YouTube channel out there, should invest in a phase of learning why they can't move a muscle, how they should stabilize a muscle from different ranges, and then learn to go through the phases before you start adding shitloads of weight, before you start doing all the crazy big bulking strategies. Because in honesty. Adding too much too much body weight at a given time will just increase inflammation, will limit your range of movement, will make you more sluggish in the gym. It's not improving the fibers of muscles that are not being stimulated by just getting heavier. So we need to learn, you know, and it, and it was, you know, this, this is why I'm very grateful. I was on the phone to Body Power this morning about an education series we're gonna try and put together. Obviously I'm speaking again at Body Power, trying to empower more, more of the, um, the more of the bodybuilding and fitness community that there's knowledge and education out there that will make a difference to their physiques. Yeah. Um, and, and it doesn't mean in often a lot of cases shifting a lot of weight around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do agree with you from a coaching standpoint. Unfortunately, you do see that in most gyms that, that, that the people that get the most questions are gen- generally the biggest guys and quite often the biggest guys will, will have a lot of anecdotal stuff to share, but they don't realize that not all the time what they've done will work for someone else and guaranteed some of the biggest guys are probably going to be quite genetically endowed in terms of they've had some favorable experiences with genetics and and they've they've made some decent progress with regards to that but then again there are some there are some big guys that that know a lot as well Uh, it it just depends how you ask you you look you you look at BPAC, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, know. he's a big guy that could be called a meathead, but he's one of the smartest bodybuilders you'll ever meet. Yeah, um, the smartest bodybuilder, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now, to be honest with you, let's look at like non-anecdotal stuff, research-wise. Research is looking at things like muscle recruitment in deadlifts, muscle recruitment in back squats. Even when you look at some of the research, has it been done on a six foot seven basketball player or a five foot two female? Mm-hmm, yeah. Has it been done on a on a, somebody who's genetically gifted? Has it been done on someone that's never been able to build muscle tissue? Yeah, it's, it's all over the place, isn't it? It's like it's well, just one well, select. It's just a select pe- a group of people. Exactly. So, so somebody will send me a research paper and say, "Oh, you said about the deadlift the other day, blah blah blah," and uh, look at this research. It's heavily activated, he- heavily, you know, looking into vastus lateralis recruitment in a deadlift. And I went, "Okay, um, so who was it done on?" Mm-hmm. How long have they been lifting? Uh, from a muscle activation standpoint, are their muscles firing differently than the new that sent me the research paper? And they went, ah. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not saying the research is wrong because an EMG study has proved that this is this is working. Yeah. But on who? Mm-hmm. You know, I interestingly, uh, I got a bodybuilder I'm working with at the moment, and he just keeps messaging me, and he says to me, Bud, you know, I, I'm not feeling my via, my lateralis, my VMO is firing all the time on an exercise. What the hell is going on? And I said, dude, 
you've got to understand that we can't just do exercises to stimulate a muscle. If for some reason the VMO is taking all the load, does it therefore not mean that neurologically the, in, there could be an inhibition in the erectus and lateralis by some mechanical ish issue? Mm -hmm. So he then went to see a muscle activation specialist on Monday on my recommendation and 80% of his uh, quad muscles at approximal closest to his hip were not they're not not firing because muscles do fire but, but their recruitment is very very delayed therefore when he's now he's very strong in his glutes and his VMO mm. so when he squats and he deadlifts and everything like that every bit of tension shifts towards his VMO and to his glutes so what we're going to have to do is take his his movement patterns right down to a load at which point he can recruit those muscles so if his back squat's 180 kg or his front squat's 180 kg, but he's only feeling his VMO, we have to get the rectus firing to the point where when we get down to the squat, then the rectus will kick in. Mm -hmm. Then we will stay at that load and increase the weight uh, from 90 there. Yeah. from there. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something which I'm fascinated at the moment is there is actual ability to shift a load from A to B, but the actual ability to maintain contractile tension on that muscle tissue. And honestly, if we want to grow lateralis, we want to know that lateralis is being worked during that set. Yeah. And yeah. if your VMO is doing all the work, you will have very big VMOs. And do you know, this is something that I'm actually working on at the moment. I want a portable EMG at M10. <laughs> I, I, we're trying to find one that's not making me have to sell my car. Um, <laughs> because, because I'm fascinated by muscle recruitment during training sessions. Yeah. And, and, and this takes this takes looking at bodybuilding to a completely different zone. If you look at genetically gifted people, muscle recruitment patterns, and therefore that that huge inability to build muscle tissue, it, it is such a rarity. Mm -hmm. But when people like you and me are talking to day-to-day -day people, day-to-day -day people who have not got nutrition nailed down, they've not got training execution nailed down, you know. I get emails from people saying I've only got twice a week to train. You know, all these areas which are not what day-to-day -day people do. Um, you know, you've had Jordan on your podcast, great friend of mine, but this guy lives, sleeps, and eats and breathes training 400 times more than anybody else. It does, yeah, it does. Do you, do you know what I mean? So yeah. then, well, then people are going, oh, I'm going to do what Jordan does. And I'm like, dude, I know Jordan's life. I've traveled with Jordan. I know Jordan. You know, you will you, in your lifetime you won't get close to being what he does, hmm. but you can do a very good job of doing a percentage of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. That's interesting. I I know that a lot of people um, is I think I think Brett Contreras does a lot of stuff with EMG as well, especially in his glute training. It'd be really interesting to see if if more people it's start cool. doing more EMG stuff, especially with regards to like just general bodybuilding stuff in M10 as well, that would be really, really interesting to see that happen, for sure. No, I, I would. I mean, to be honest with you, you know, it, uh, d doing EMGs is not a skill of mine. I'm not going to be there going, oh, I, yeah. I am. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to find somebody that's going to come in the gym, and what we're going to do is, hopefully, we're going to get all the guys in the gym. We've got Josh Maley, second in universe, working out at the gym. We've got Callum at the moment, stacking on lots of tissue. There's me, 40 year old, you know, am I, am I stimulating muscle tissue properly? You know, and we wanna look at this across training, and I wanna know whether or not I should really be changing. See, every single week I see in my physio who looks at my muscle recruitment. So, um, and there was so much that wasn't working, but relatively right now what I'm doing is, I can shift eight or nine plates on a hat squat. 
Nice. <laughs> that, that's fine, right? It's not an ego thing. I can, right? Yep. But can I shift it with lateralis? I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. But to be honest with you, am I trying to do use the hack squat to grow quads, or am I trying to do the hack squat to just do a PB? Don't know. <laughs> this is the thing that fascinates me: is yeah. that everybody's posting a lot about. Like, I'm really pleased for me, for example, that my bench press has gone to where it is right now. But I promise you that when I do that bench press, those muscles are firing because I have them tested. And when I'm now bench pressing and pressing, I know my chest is growing, but I know that when I'm tested, they are firing correctly. Okay. Now, if you do a bench press, how do you know that your triceps aren't the thing that are overworking? And, you're, and, and therefore... Yeah, but you keep saying my yeah. You know, someone keeps saying my chest isn't growing, but they've got triceps that are falling out the back there of their. Go, yeah, yeah. And so you've got to say to yourself, right? Have we got to adjust your training or take you back down a peg, a, a phase or two, to where you're not pressing the sixty kg dumbbells, where you're pressing the thirties, but you're pressing the thirties able to contract through the chest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And hopefully chatting to you about this is really going to open people's eyes to other areas to bodybuilding. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and, and that's, you know, that's what makes me really excited about coaching people is that there's so many things to look at. Yeah, agreed. I think a lot of people, especially when they find out about progressive overload and they look into it a little bit more and they, they get really obsessed with logging their numbers and beating them, and it's quite easy to lose contact with actually just, like you said, feeling the muscles work that you're actually trying to work and going across a full range of motion, I think people just people just make try and make things easier, try and like cheat movements, and that's obviously not going to lead them to the results that they want from a bodybuilding perspective. If they're trying to shift maximal load as like a, a powerlifter or something like that, it's a completely different ball game. But um, exactly, hence why we're not we're not powerlifters. Anyway, um, moving on to sort of the next question, we know that. Mecha mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and muscle damage are three key mechanisms of muscle hypertrophy. Now, listening to what you just said there, I think I'm inclined to sort of maybe think, I, I maybe know the answer to this question, but I'm not sure. <laughs> in terms of like w how you'd structure a training program in terms of dealing or at least hitting all of these variables of hypertrophy, is there, is there any sort of would you focus more towards achieving mechanical tension? Would you say that you feature a lot of metabolic stress moves or at least exercises that favor metabolic stress in your training? And what is there any sort of individual variance in terms of like female to male that you would program training in a way that, that, that hits these variables? Right. Crikey. I, I love them all, right? I, I love every single um, uh, variable out there for mu for muscle hypertrophy. You know, over the years, I'll tell you this. You know, I met Jordan when I first met Milos. When I first started doing Charles Poliquin stuff, we've all got to get um, we've all got kind of get a, got to get a bit obsessed with the methodology before we learn its or its pluses or minuses, right? Yeah. So sure. when I yeah. did when I did strength training, I thought, Jesus Christ, you know, I'm following one methodology and I'm learning about 
um, neural training and very heavy lifting and getting strong and helping people become fast. I'm going to do this because everything that I've ever taught, I had to, I've have to make sure that I know it. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I do it for a period of time, and I did strength training for a good period of time. Um, and then I said, you know what, um, it's not really building muscle tissue. And then I was like, I've got to incorporate more bodybuilding, but I still like lifting heavier. Um, and then I got injured and then I learned a lot about injury rehab because I fixed my back. Then I got involved with, um, Milos and, uh, I think before Milos, I actually, I did meet Jordan and Jordan was like, this is how I train. This is what, you know, you should really be looking at doing. So I was like, okay, cool. And I start that and realize that I personally realized that I was missing some level of stimulation that was um, uh, just, just missing something from that start of training. Okay. And I personally didn't enjoy going into the gym every single day to beat numbers. I was getting beat up. My body was hurting. Um, and, and there was something that I was still researching, which was like stimulating muscle. And for me, I got to a point where I was chasing a number and I wasn't stimulating muscle. Now, it's not to say that you can't build muscle. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I, I, I was, the problem is with being a coach is I question everything, right? Without doubt, aggressive overload works. Dante, Jordan, Scott Stevenson, you know, they produce great physiques on a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. But, what, what they try and do in their teachings is teach people that CNS dominant training will will wear you down if you're not recovering from it. If you know if your volume's too high, you won't recover from it. So there's a good reason why a lot of building bodybuilders can train four or five, five, six times a week. It's because metabolic stimulus on the body has less of a CNS effect, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, true. what we're looking at is we're trying to get this fine balance between being able to recover and being able to perform. Now. Most people, good few years into training, don't earn the right to be lifting very, very heavy. Because mechanically, they will break down. Yep. All right? If mechanically, they will break down, they will not make progress on that tissue as efficiently. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, so when you look at mechanical stress, you look at um, uh, frequency, you look at um, uh, the other mechanisms of hypertrophy, you've got to think to yourself, what's appropriate for that individual at any time? So with my training, I personally will look at a progressive overload lift always. Mm-hmm. I go to the gym, like tomorrow with back, it's a pull. So I do that as like a rack pull, right, off the small, low level blocks. Okay. With chest, I've just finished doing high incline 45 degree hammer press. Got that up to four plates for nine, and I thought, right, I'm happy days. That's where I, I've never really been, but um, let's back off that for a while. Let's look at some areas that I know are going to help bring that up. So triceps and um, let's look at some areas which are going to maybe facilitate that. So I'm, I, I'm looking at like a flat bench, uh, an incline bench. My flat bench has been worked at for a moment of time. Now I'm changing that to a flat dumbbell press. They're my progressive lifts. Now, after I finish those, I then go into specifically looking at creating other areas of hypertrophy so that I don't smash my joints to pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I then look at the the, the uh, more of the cell swelling methodology. So with that methodology, um, you are not necessarily looking at, you will increase the number of sets on that muscle group, but you will look at potentially extending those sets 
um, whether or not you're using rest pause methodology, whether or not you are trying to increase cell swelling by increasing lactic acid with some drop sets, mm -hmm. um, or whether you're actually just looking at some higher end of the repetition scale. Now, I know, for example, with biceps, that they respond unfavorably, in my opinion, to drop sets, to rest pause, to pumping up with light weights. Okay. They, they do respond, in my opinion, better at getting stronger. Okay. So I invariably will not go above eight to 10 repetitions on a bicep. I won't do a drop set go again okay. because the light gets the, the you know biceps fatigue in my opinion very quickly. Mm -hmm. I I want to have maximal rest and lift as much as I can. Whereas when you're locked down on a chest press, you can extend that set by dropping the weight and stay locked in and continue to go with the drop down load. You, because there's a lot more facilitating muscles to be able to extend that set. Mm -hmm. Tricep similarly, you know you can you can do that as soon as you finish the set. Triceps to me, unless you're locked in with dips or something, if you're doing them in isolation fashion, they're going to fatigue. Mm -hmm. So if you've got something that's surrounded by more multi-jointed, then you're able to extend that set. But if you can't keep tension on the muscle, then again, you've got no place to do that. So from my perspective, I involve many of the me mechanisms around hypertrophy within a workout. Okay. Now, some people will say, I'm going to train twice a day. I'm not going to try and um, look at that... Uh, metabolic overloading pattern of progressive overload in, in the beginning of the session and then do that late and, and put in more volume or uh, lactic work or cell swelling work later on in the session. I'm going to keep my central nervous system stuff separate and then bring in the other stuff maybe later on in the day. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I do, so, yeah. so it, 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 do you know what? I'm not going to bring progressive overload in for a beginner. Okay. So I, okay. if, if I've got a bodybuilder and their execution is poor, I'm not going to give, bring, in, uh, bring in progressive overload. I'm going to do a month of, which is why I won't do a 12-week prep or 16-week prep for somebody if they've got laggy body parts. You know, how many people will contact your online training and go like that, ah, here's my front relaxed, here's my side chest, and you go, right, you're ready to go. Mm -hmm. You need 20, 20, 25, 26 weeks. You need that 12-week phase to be able to help them build muscle. You know, help them change their physique. And if you're a physique coach, it's not just about getting somebody lean. If you're a prep coach, yes. But if you're a physique coach, you're trying to improve their physique. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I need a certain amount of time to try and work with people. What happens a lot with me, I, I take less people to stage now, but help more people in the off-season. Okay. Interesting. The reason being is because the biggest, like, from a prep perspective... There are a lot of people that specialize in that week in, week out, week in, week out. But how many people are there in this country that are specialists as off-season coaches? Hardly any. No. Right. Yeah. Why not? I think it's because the the ease of being a prep coach and the brand is, is quite easy to get into. And more people are getting into it because they've done a couple of shows and they did well. And they believe that they know the process they might not feel that they know the process of gaining as well because they probably even haven't even gained properly because they just keep hopping from show to show, doing shows every year, and then being a prep coach alongside that. I think that's probably the reason why. Yeah. So so when you when you say, I mean, I, I didn't want to digress too much. We could possibly talk about that shortly. But oh, going good. back to what you were saying, going, watch, going back to what you were saying about the, the, the different mechanisms about hypertrophy. I mean, even if you look at the progressive overload methodology, when they start to bring in things like muscle rounds and rest pauses and that sort of stuff, sure. they, they are, they're effectively looking at um, extending a set. They're looking at creating more metabolic 
effects from that uh, extending that set. Yeah. And when you start that, you're not progressively overloading, you're just extending that set. Mm-hmm. So they are, if you think about the progressive overload methodology, even within it, Scott Stevenson, Dante, Jordan, they're still bringing in other other mechanisms of hypertrophy. Yeah, they are. Yeah, for sure. But, but a lot of people don't look at it like that. So what we all do, if you're a smart bodybuilder, you will incorporate cell swelling. You will incorporate the other mechanisms of hypertrophy. You will look at metabolic stress, muscle damage. You know, we need to be able to incorporate those. But it's how you do it. You know, if you are doing high volume, but you're not eating enough, then you're not going to grow. If you can do low volume and eat more, then you will grow. Hmm. You know, what do I like from a training session? Um, I, I like to work hard. I don't like to work not smart. So I, for example, start my session off with maybe like, if I'm doing quads, I'll, I'll make sure my, my external rotators, my hip extenders, they're all fired up. They're all working correctly um, I, I, on abduction, hip extension. I'll make sure I do some activation drills for my uh, rec fem. I'll make sure I feel ready to go. Okay. Then I'll, for example, at the moment, fire up my rec fem with a single leg extension. And then I say, right, I'm ready to hit some, hit, hit my front squats or hit a back squat. And then I'll, I, I will not... Um, work up to the weight that I want to use by fatiguing on eight to 10 reps. I'll maybe do three or four reps, get the central nervous system fired up, do two or three feeder sets. And then I go, right, my numbers are 180. I want to hit 182 for six. And then I hit 182 for six. Mm-hmm. And then what I'll do is drop the load 20, 20% and hit like a 12 to 15 set. Okay. That's where I've done that overload set. That's when I've done that cluster of overload. Then I progress for the rest of my set on still progressively overloading one other exercise, but then the rest of it will be looking at more more metabolic stress, uh, lower loading, um, higher repetitions, a bit more cell swelling. Yeah, for sure. No, that makes sense. That's a very detailed answer. And I, I like the fact that I think what, what maybe is the one of the biggest take-homes from that message there, Mark, is the fact that you know whilst you've spoken to and followed the principles of other people for quite some time, you've you've managed to at least develop the self-awareness of what works for you. And I think that, that that can be quite beneficial for a lot of people in the in the way that they can try different methods and try different approaches. And obviously you had the issue of feeling extremely beat up and run down on a, on a purely progressively overloaded approach. And I think more people need to potentially be aware that, that there's not just whilst progressive overload will always work, there's not just one gospel approach that you have to stay stuck well, me, to for your entire life let me just jump in there if i if, if you don't mind when it. i was looking at progressive overload i would i will be honest with you my legs were responding okay but my weakest body parts is north of my nipples <laughs> right that's the issue right yeah. so my legs have always been a decent body part for me okay you know, uh, uh, hamstrings weren't, but I, I, I laid into them, and I, I know with recruitment and changing machines that they were. So when I looked at progressive overload for my arms, and my elbows were beat up, my joints were beat up, it's because the joints were getting too much loading. But at the end of a chest session on a bench press, my chest didn't even feel like it had worked. So as, a, as someone that's very critical, I go, what the hell is going on with progressive overload that's not allowing me to get results? Mm. It's not that I'm not progressively overloading enough. It's the fact that I'm not stimulating the muscle. 
So then my journey takes me to another area, which is I've got to understand contractile fibers. I've got to understand recruitment and muscle, which is when I came across RTS as an education system. And I was like, Jesus Christ, this, this pinpoints together the last 14 years in the industry into the 15th year where it goes, look at initiation of a muscle, look at the physics around machines, look at setups of machines, because they're areas that people don't consider and areas that we teach and areas which when you just bring them together, you, you go, okay, at what point do you earn the right to progressively overload? When you can do it well. Exactly, and when you can actually recruit the muscle. So yeah. the thing is about the pec, right, is it goes from here all the way to here. Now, if you get to here, and you have to quickly move it to then bring in the mid-range, you are not able to, to, to use the pec in that lengthened position. When you do a bench press from this position here, if the first joint that moves is your anterior delts and the trap attachment to your clavicle, then you're not going to use your chest. You're going to protract forward, and you're only going to feel your chest at the, at the three-quarter range. But if the biggest part of your chest is where it attaches onto your humerus right back here. Okay. Right. So if you're going to train and you want that to grow, you've got to be able to use it. So if you can't use it, the point about progressively overloading is that your, your bench press marker is 140 kgs, but it's not 140 kgs of your pec being able to move the muscle, move the, the muscle itself. Yeah. So why do people suffer pec tears? Because they overload without decent form or an awareness of their pec actually working exactly so what happens with progressive overload is this you, you you start doing bench you go from 120 to 130 to 140 as you go from 120 at 120 you might be able to use your chest mm -hmm. but then as you start to progressively overload you shorten the range because you're not strong down here yep. you're certainly not strong enough to go up 20 kgs in a month mm -hmm. right you get to here you shorten the range Range, you get to 130, you start pressing, you'll feel less chest, you'll still feel your elbows and your triceps more, you drop your elbows down by your side, and then you get to 140 and you go, buddy, it's a big day. You get 140 on and it drops an inch lower than you've been using for the last three weeks to the fibers that are only still able to move 120. Yeah. An extra 20 snaps your tendon. Bang, yeah. And then you go, okay, well, I'll spend a month training chest and then come back to training test by just doing bench press. You, you will be somebody that will have a recurring pet tear problem. You know, so again, I, I talked on this on Insta story this morning. You have to make sure that if you are going to um, uh, overload a muscle over time, it needs to be strong through its full range. And if it's not, most people lifting heavier all the time, forget the word progressive overload, they shorten the range of movement Watch somebody on a hack squat, right? Somebody, if you watch my hack squat videos, I've never compromised depth, never. And uh, I know that if I go down with eight plates, I'm coming out the bottom. <laughs> and then when I see somebody else doing eight or nine plates and they're going down like five inches, I'm like, like I look at your biomechanics, you have another five inches worth of range. That's five inches of you pussying out. You know, and that's five inches of range that's limiting your contractile growth potential. Yeah, for sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does massively. That's One question that I did have in terms of like, obviously you mentioned there, you you can sort of, you, you sort of mentioned some visual feedback in terms of the bench press and getting involved with your sort of anterior delts, etc. So that's obviously visual in terms of 
you could look at someone or look at a video and say, okay, yeah, you're restricting range of motion or you're, or you're doing something wrong at the bottom of the movement. Now, how much feedback do you get from clients or individuals in terms of like, do you, in terms of whether they feel the muscle working or not, do you, would you literally give them the art, like the answer, like the question of, do you feel it in the muscle or would you say you learn more using a feedback tool like video feedback or the eyes? Yeah. Right. Love this question. Love it. Mm -hmm. It's it's the coaching eye. Yeah. And you know what everyone's trying to do nowadays? Everyone wants to be an online coach. Everybody wants to be in the industry for six or 12 months and realize that they can make five to 600 pound a week by doing at home, doing online training. Mm. Now, I have a gripe with that because I've done all my career on the gym floor. 5am starts, you know, the WhatsApp group at M10, the guys are like, who's in first tomorrow morning? 5.15. And the guys pipe up, 5.15, right? They're on the floor watching what happens. A golf a golf pro can't do online training. A golf pro has to watch what happens. We are coaches. Now, if you're an online prep coach, it's a completely different matter because you're manipulating training variables and nutrition variables and people are just doing the work. Yeah. Like yeah. You have to remember, a prep coach isn't specifically a execution physique coach. That's why I have a niche. Yeah. I, I, I will tell you right down, right now, that I turn down people for prep because I'll tell you what I'm very good at is you can come in here and I will tell you why you're not growing. But that's an expertise I've been trying to hone for years. You know, when you look at the skill that Jordan has coming up to prep, three weeks out, two weeks out, one week out, three days out, I mean, he's phenomenal. But why is he phenomenal? He's had years of experience. Yes, 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 yes. So one thing that trainers try and do, and one thing day-to-day people training with their friends cannot do, is they cannot pay for a quick way to learn a coaching eye. It has to be done over and over again. Now, the problem is, if you have a coaching eye that is based on doing two courses, I did an Insta, I, I did a an Insta story this morning, and I said I I had a realization because I'm seeing my physio again today. How many years I have paid weekly to see a chiro, physio, osteo um, in my whole career, even back to playing rugby, and all I've done every single time I'm with them is ask questions throughout the whole bloody session. I must have annoyed that many people. Because I bounced around that many physios because I was looking for one that I can gel with. My my physio now is one of the head physios at Sale Rugby Rugby Team, uh, Premiership Rugby Team. Okay. Such a smart guy, guy that we're going to be putting on a course with him later on in the year. But um, one of the most important things is he knows what my eyes like when I work with people. I can see somebody start to bench press and see if the pec's not firing. I can see internal rotation sh- happening at the shoulder. I can see them tensing through the neck. I can see that the lumbar's about to lift off because it's just part of the eye that I've got from being interested. And when I'm interested, I then ask questions. Why does this happen? Not enough trainers say, why is that happening? And what happens with, once you know the answer to any given question, you therefore can tell somebody what to look out for. So as I'm going down to the bottom, a cue is a very, very helpful piece of information you can give a lay person for them to understand what you want them to get out of the exercise. So if you give a cue like this, pull your shoulders back and then push as hard as you can. Or 
I want you to feel, before we even do the exercise, what it's like to feel your scapula rotating around your ribcage. And I get people to stand up and I move their scapula with them. When we lie down, I want you to feel that movement. Secondary, I want to, you to learn with exercises prior to bench pressing what it's like to feel your lower trap muscles engage prior to pressing. So I teach all the components in individual. And then when I lie somebody down, all right, right, before we bench press, can you tell me that you're able to, can you lock your scapula down? And I will be able to visually see their conscious intent to lock down. And I go, great. Now, when I put the dumbbells in, I don't want you to lose that. And so there's quite a lot of positive reinforcement from cueing that you have to give somebody to make sure that they reinforce that over and over again, repetition over time. Just like driving. You watch some, if you watch somebody doing their first driving lesson, the amount of times they, they, they press the brake instead of the clutch and the car start, car slams forward and you nearly break your nose, like that's because their neurological system is not programmed yet to understand where the clutch accelerator and brake is. Right. So with training, neurologically, you're not programmed to know that when you go to do a press, I keep talking about pressing because we're on video, but um, I'll do carbs, but I'd have to get half naked. <laughs> but basically, when you look at a press to bring the muscle fibers together, you can't think about pushing the dumbbells up because you'll protract. So the coaching cue needs to be something that the person understands that tells you to bring the biceps across the body or the upper arm across the body, contracting the fibers. So effectively what I'm doing with people is teaching them through my ability to be a visual coach, a set of cues that allow them to resonate what's called internal language. Mm -hmm. So they have to know a new set of language that talks to the inside workings of their body. So we have external cues, which is move the dumbbells. Yep. And we have an internal cue, which is Think about the joint, the muscle where it attaches, and when you're bringing it across your body, you're consciously, internally focusing on what is happening at the joint or muscle level. Now that sounds, Jesus Christ, it's very complicated. I'll talk at that level for somebody that wants to build a physique, but I promise you, if you're coming in to lose weight to start with, you won't get talked to at that level. And people think, you know, when people come here, they think it's all about execution. It's execution at the right point. Yeah. We'll let people learn how to train, let people learn that it's not an intimidating place to be. We'll work on their psychological imbalances and all that sort of stuff, and then bring in the execution. You know, so everything everything has a point to bring in at this right time. But as we're talking about bodybuilding, it's got to be your limited amount of knowledge is what will stop you being able to cue the right coaching tips. Yeah, yeah, no, cool. That's a, that's an amazing answer. I think that. People as coaches can only improve over time. Like the, the the more bench presses you see, the more overhead presses you see, the more squats you see, the more you'll learn consistent issues or movement patterns that aren't quite correct. And you know, I guess the willingness to learn and to also learn from people like yourself that have had the experience and had the coaching eye will pass down knowledge that you can just replicate into your into your own clientele, which obviously you'll never quite match it until you get to that level of experience, but at least you can, you can take coaching cues from other people that, that, that have been there and done that. If you exactly. exactly. Cool. Awesome. So another question that I had in terms of, um, training volume and especially sort of intra workout training volume and how you'd set up things. So I, I heard you, um, earlier in the, 
podcast talk about your front squat and how you were doing sort of a, a first set which you were trying to almost beat a number or at least your first set would be the most intense now when it comes to multiple work sets on one exercise do you see it, um, issues with people doing too many work sets on a single exercise and do you see there any sort of benefit from doing less work sets on one exercise and then moving on to another movement in order to get better or higher quality training volume in on a single session okay i, I like the question um at no point should you have a a, a massive drop off in loading yeah okay so for example if you're going to do five sets of, of, of bench you're looking at accumulated stress right so you're accumulating an amount of volume or work on that muscle to, to fatigue it right uh-huh. now what a lot of people will say is well you know why not take advantage of uh, maximally overloading that muscle with one single bout of maximal intent maximal damage okay. Um, the problem I find with doing that methodology alone is that most people are unable to achieve that. Most people get a lot of burnout very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, most people don't enjoy going in the gym and just doing two sets on an exercise. I you know, agree with that. yeah, I agree. With that. You know, personally, you know, I, I don't really feel as if I've done enough. Now there is the there is the um, point of diminishing returns with a lot of training right that if you're literally just getting a pump now you've got to remember cell swelling cell volumization you know is is one of the um mechanisms of what by way of how a muscle will grow right Mm -hmm. getting blood and nutrients into the into the tissue so if for example you're doing high mechanical loading the cell swelling advantageous that you're going to get out of that set is less with it being a cns driven loading pattern so we have we have to get the um now let's say for example somebody does a heavy lift exercise two cns dominant exercise three gets in three or four sets but three or four sets of 25 percent of what they could potentially do so that's subpar they're not having any markers of improvement whatsoever Mm. to me that's effectively just taking advantage of cell swelling so it doesn't have as much advantage but then you've got to pair that with nutrition so somebody said to me the other day, you know, I put a post out yesterday actually about carbs. You know, if your body weight has gone from 79 to 70 uh, to 80 in the last 6 to 12 months, but you're complaining that your muscles aren't growing, then you're not facilitating that ability to actually add tissue by nutrition. And if you're not adding tissue but your training volume has increased, you're going to increase burnout because you're not recovering from training. So God, some of these questions, are, I mean, your questions are fantastic, but they just open up a whole freaking can of worms with me because there's so many different areas to consider. But what I will say is, you know, your question really was, does it not make sense to just do less work and make sure the intensity stays high? Yeah. But in my, like, the intensity with most people should still be very high, but you've got to remember, 14, 12 to 14 sets of good work for most people in the early days and then nailing down their nutrition is ample. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's ample. It's ample. You know, but when you when you look at the ability for me, you know, if I did 16 sets of good work, I, I, I've still got more in the tank. So over time, my body's ability to be able to handle more increased work rate, look at the likes of Mo Farah, how hard that guy has to train compared to how hard he had to train 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
because our body adapts over time and as our body adapts to the stimulus we have to do more to uh, in, in, encourage change you know if we have a progressive overload methodology we have to find other ways of being able to make sure we can lift more weight and if that means stressing your body out to the point where you have to eat that much to put on a, just another kilo where that extra kilo turns into 2.5 kgs in a lift you got to put yourself through the hurt locker to eat that much mm. so so we've got so many different areas and ways of looking at this that i think if we're talking to beginners true if we're talking slightly more advanced you have people being able to maintain more work increase more cell swelling increase more muscle damage with a consistent amount of load over time so it depends some people are looking very much at a few of the mechanisms of hypertrophy to grow a lot of bodybuilders don't look at progressive overload a lot look at look at milos the whole methodology methodology was cell swelling now, a lot of people don't know that Milos's second exercise in most sessions was a max lift. Wow, interesting. Okay. Milos didn't do just giant sets. At the beginning of the session, you would do a max lift. <laughs> I remember doing a max lift with him in Serbia twice. Um, when he's been over here at different sessions with us, we'll do a max lift. A max lift being uh, like a 5RM or how? Maybe a more of a 6 to 8. Okay. But, but 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 you got to remember the whole point about um, Milos's protocol was about expanding cells. It was about you know um, getting as many nutrients in and causing causing that cell swelling over time. You know the amount of volume was enabling you pre during an intro to get a lot of nutrition into the cells. Um, now did it increase? And coming close to competition, there was a super compensatory super super carb loading should i say methodology that ultimately over time for certain people would have presented an incredible physique if you missed the boat with me the flat muscles that hadn't responded to training didn't they just sucked in all the carbs and i looked flat so it, it has a large room for for to go wrong mm -hmm. so you're looking at one end of the spectrum if all you do is increase cell swelling what you're not doing is building a dense physique yeah. and i think there's that there's that that there's that carryover between density and fullness and then muscle pump and uh, uh, just for the sake of the pump because it's one of the mechanisms of hypertrophy so i think everybody should focus on progressive overload to a certain degree Mm -hmm. everyone should focus on some cell swelling and muscle damage you know we should it should all be encompassed at some point during your methodology now something you did say in one of your questions was about looking at different blocks of training yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Some, some people look at hypertrophy phases strength phases i i don't use those okay the reason i don't use those is because i predominantly keep a strength lift in at all times i think nutrition has to be too varied if you go from strength to hypertrophy so you have to have a drop down in amount quantity of food or else you're gonna get fat on a lower volume phase. Yep. And then the increase in food has to go up. Um, if you then go from um, a uh, CNS dominant phase into a volume phase, that CNS phase may have, may have blown you out and then you go straight into a volume phase, which again could just screw your adrenals up even more. So I think you need to play that safe line between 12 and 14 sets for most people over the first two years to grow as you become more experienced, as you have more tissue, your ability to handle more load over time 
during a training session will increase to be able to get the stimulus and the requirement from the muscle tissue you do need to do more mm-hmm. but again sometimes it's personal preference over your training sessions as well you know i like meat in the morning some people don't people don't respond well to it so again it's it, it's very personal specific if we just looked at what the science says and did it would we enjoy our training as much um because you know we've all got to find a methodology that we enjoy and you know one of the things for me if my muscles aren't being stimulated, it goes back to execution. You can put all the carbs in them you want. They'll fill up. They'll pop up. You'll think you look good for a photo. But the proof of the pudding is when you take your top off and you're flat, do you see a physique or do you only see a physique when you pump up? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a very, very good point there indeed. I think that a lot of people a lot of people would, would take home points from that in terms of being able to have an approach that they can adhere to and enjoy is is super important and also from a from the sets perspective that you talked about i think that you know whilst you can go in and destroy two sets of an exercise and then move on to another i think that if you were taking if you say you had four sets on a a squat or something like that if you were sensible in your approach to the squat sets you could still accrue a decent amount of training volume across the four sets potentially using the last one to be somewhat of a more higher intensity sort of a test set or even even the first one potentially but i mean anecdotally with myself i i tend to prefer to accrue the work first prior to going for a set where i know that i'm going to come very close to muscular failure because i find that if i do that initial set with the most intensity first it will really damage my ability to accrue training volume in the in the other sets that I do after that, um, if that makes sense. No, I do, but I also think that if you hit that high CNS loading early on in the session, First, yeah. it, it, it can give you a good, uh, real good priming nervous system wise okay. to be more efficient. Uh, you know, I can't remember the um, was it the Doug Hepburn method of one six. Um, okay. which, which was effectively just doing a one one RM, and then your next set would be a six RM. But the one RM would basically stimulate your nervous system to make you more efficient in the six. Yeah, fair enough. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I mean, yeah, like we like we said, sort of, there's so many approaches to things that it's it's a large amount. Obviously, what works on paper, and then obviously what works anecdotally in terms of how you feel that how it feels like and then trying things as well is, well, is going you know when you say trying when you say trying things you know one of the most important things for me um is with a lot of people is um the problem that we have so much is that when it comes to trying things not enough, not enough people do the trying mm-hmm. a lot of people do the reading but not enough people do the application okay right so the application side of it for me is have you gone through different training systems? Have you gone through different um, exercises? Have you looked at your structural limitations? Have you looked at this? Have you looked at that? All right, if you're only three years into the fitness industry, you haven't, but then you might come and learn from someone like me or you listen to your podcast to learn different methodologies. And you might do a training system with, with Milos for six months and find that it doesn't work for you. You might work with Milos for four years and realize that it's exactly what you've always been looking for. Yeah. And there's a reason why some people drive four by fours and some people drive sports cars. Personal preference is key. And personal preference isn't necessarily ideal because to travel across Europe in a 4x4 will probably tear you to pieces financially, but it's a choice you're willing to make. 
Now, for, optimal for um, uh, physique development is set in stone. If you can't contract muscle and you don't know how to stabilize, you will not stimulate that muscle to grow. You will, over time, increase your chance of injury. But if you do it right and you do start progressively overloading, you will get very strong. Yeah. And the problem is with a lot of people that fluff around with pumping up weights all the time, they are very, very weak in the gym. So if someone says, look, this muscle looks good, this muscle's great, when I come to a show it looks shit, there is a big carryover in my opinion between them being strong with that muscle group. Now, strong just to progressive overload, but realistically, a lot of people have not done enough work on their structural imbalances to be able to safely say that what they lift right now is lifting with the correct muscle groups and tension and stability. You know, someone could have a very good hack squat, but their back lifts off and they, they do it all through their tiptoes. That doesn't mean that you're stimulating the quads in the right fashion. Someone could have a very good uh, leg extension, but their butt lifts off the seat. You're not recruiting the quads anywhere near what you think you should be. You know, so it might be seven plates on a hack, on a leg press, but on a on a leg extension. But give them three three sets, pull the bum down, drive it into the seat, and recruit the the, the rectus where it should be from. They can't even move it. So uh, you know, there's an ability to shift load correctly, an ability to shift load incorrectly, and uh, I know which one builds more muscle. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. It's funny you mentioned the leg extension. I think that's a very good example in terms of people using maximal load and trying to shift it. Um, and again, like they're probably not even feeling it in their quads whatsoever, let alone where they exactly want to feel it. So, yeah. Well, they're more bothered about how many Instagram likes they get off the video. Yeah. No, dude, dude, this is the problem with Instagram, right? Instagram people put pictures up of a progressive lift because they think if it's not if it's not actually doing anything like if they're lifting the 30 kgs on a dumbbell press what is the point of sharing it but if they get it up to 60 in the next three months and it's worth a couple of likes then happy days get it out there you know um but to be honest with you uh that's a lot of drivers for people nowadays their big lifts they keep putting out there and if their big lifts is a squat you know, let let's let's see you putting out 25 kg dumbbell curls on a on a preacher curl, right? When we get that and you lock down doing it properly, then 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 you might get people say, "Fuck, that's impressive." And you probably have big arms as well. <laughs> yeah, but like Jordan says, you know, and, and I've had this discussion with him many times. He's like, if you want big triceps, do dips, right? And narrow grip presses and things, yeah. True, but it, it but but if people have structural dysfunctions and if people can't use those muscles effectively and if biomechanically that exercise didn't suit that individual, then it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, you know, a lot of times when you're doing dips, if you look at the physics around it, it's placing a lot more load to the anterior delt. Interesting, yeah, yeah. So when a lot of people lean forward and they're not even getting any flexion at the elbow joint, it's just an extension of the shoulder joint and they're pushing through the delt. So if your delts are very, very strong, of course, you've got to remember this. If you're doing a multi-joint exercise, how do you know that that muscle's doing the work? Now, you don't know whether it's bench press that's building your triceps. Right, so ultimately you're doing these exercises, and yes, a certain amount of blood will flow into the muscles, but that blood that flows into the muscles will give you pump. It will. Mm -hmm. you, you know, if you're doing that up and down on, on a bench, right? If you're doing dips like this on this chair, you will get a pump in the triceps. Yeah. Doesn't mean that that is actually going to stimulate them enough to, to make them grow. 
you know, I know when I do that, I can feel my anterior delts. So my anterior delts will get a pump. So I've got 50-50. Is it more advantageous to pick an exercise that gives me more direct stimulus on that muscle? So, you know, um, uh, like I, I come back around to the whole beginning of this, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a, um, I don't slate different methodologies of training in the slightest because I think every single one of them has their place. What I am very good at is taking somebody who can't build their physique, a trainer that can't teach people how to train, and knowing when to start that person appropriate. Yeah, no, I think you... When you can get very strong, get very strong. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that, yeah, it all comes back to the basics, doesn't it? Like every topic we've sort of hit on it, it's like if you're not nailing the basics, you're not doing things right, you need to address that prior to going into a more in-depth approach or more advanced movements or progressively overloading or whatever you're doing, like whatever approach you're doing. If you're not doing the basics correct, then progressing from there is going to be very difficult. One last question I did have for you, Mark, before we sort of um, close things up is I know you mentioned earlier on in the podcast in terms of your pressing moves, you were rotating some things. So you were doing um, flat dumbbell presses, uh, sometimes a flat barbell, etc. So I'd like to hear your opinion on how frequently or what do you believe the advantages are in terms of exercise rotation and do you see people maybe rotating movements too frequently and um, like before they've actually truly maxed out a single lift? If that question makes sense. <laughs> yes, very much so. I don't think people have a, I don't think people have training programs. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think they turn up at the gym and they go, let's start with flat dumbbell press. Let's start with incline press. Um, or the bench press. Let's start with flat bench press. You know, um, People do not have a idea of what they're trying to do. They think that by just doing loads of different stuff, loads of different stuff will work. But ultimately, um, I personally like to get a set amount of movement patterns very, very strong. So if it's flat bench and incline bench, I work at making them very, very strong. Okay. All right? And I'll drive those up. Now, of course, something that a lot of people don't understand is the reason we rotate exercises is because muscles vary their plane of movement. We have a shortened range of the pec. We have a lengthened range of the pec. We have it lengthened out there. But we have it lengthened here. We also have it lengthened from that position there. So there's all these attachment points and different fiber attachments. So when we change angles and machines, we're specifically looking to do a job. If your lower lats are very, very weak, then you do need to focus on the lower lat. If all you're doing is rows here, rows here, or pull downs, you're training more of a lengthened range of the fibers, so you're paying no respect to the mid and shortened range fibers, the, the lower lats. So when you're looking at your program design, it should dictate really what the outcome of the workout is all about. A lot of people just do it because they want to do loads of exercises, they don't have a, a respect for what they're trying to get out of the session. So one of the things for me, the reason I'm trying to increase my flat bench is because now I'm a lot more stable. I can I can really really work on getting the level of density out here but we know from bench press that if you're locked down and you work very very well the triceps do are recruited at that kind of lockout and mid-range or, or the um activation point of a, of a press which is why now i've got my long head and my tricep more stable my triceps come in a lot more when i press now therefore i can do isolation but twice a week i hit pressing movements pressing movements will grow your triceps mm -hmm. The EMG studies show that they are recruited during pressing movements. So if they're recruited during pressing movements and
And mine, for example, were weak. My chest was doing the work, but my triceps were fatiguing. Therefore, my chest is not bigger because my triceps are weak as piss. So what I have to do is prioritize a lot more triceps work so that when they come into play on a press, then I get stronger. So um, I have to choose my rotations of exercises. Weaker body, weaker body parts, such as arms for me, I hit triceps twice a week. So I do half the loading on them, but hit the same volume across the week, but hit them twice. Okay. Okay. So if I hit triceps on a Monday and a Thursday, then then I will do like eight or nine sets of triceps, uh, eight sets of triceps on Tuesday and eight sets on Thursday. Okay. And will you rotate those exercises? So will on um, the separate days you'll do two different movements at all, or do you keep the movements the same and aim to progress those? At the moment, I I, I come round once a week to one of the main lifts. So with my triceps. I'll do a cable extension at the moment, really working that long head and yeah. getting it as hard as I can. And then from that position there, I'll come forward and then just do a dumbbell, a, a, a rope tricep extension. And then when I then come back round later on in the week, I'll do a straight arm to get the long head of the tricep fired up. Okay. And then I, I specifically spend four to five sets just doing the cross arm dumbbell extension. Then I'm done. All right. So yeah. uh, there are, with triceps for me, very rarely, unless I can get a very good rope, exercises that I would do bilaterally for triceps. Okay. Just because I've got shoulder mechanical dysfunction, and most of the time when you do triceps, there's a lot of internal rotation that happens anyway when people work, and it doesn't effectively work the triceps how it should. So um, in terms of exercise rotation, um, I think people should stick with exercises for a phase. Yeah. Sometimes it's advantageous to stick with an exercise and rotate it every second week. Okay. So, you know, trying to progressively overload the same lift every single Monday uh, has worked well for me to leave it two weeks to come back to it. Yeah. I know Jordan does as well. Like, you'll leave it two weeks before coming back to a big lift. Yeah. Um, but then you look at some of these Eastern European lifters, and these guys are hitting the same lift every twice a week. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess it, it, it depends on, obviously, training age, and like you mentioned at the start, how well you've been training for, and that promotes training age but i think you know the the newer lifters will be able to stick to a bench press in the six to eight rep range and continually progress it for for quite some time before they'll need some sort of rotation or even an undulated rep range or anything like that something that needs to change you know i i'm not uh, i don't apply strength and conditioning methodology to hypertrophy to uh like for example like a strength and conditioning methodology would would fluctuate a lot with it one of the biggest reasons why people aren't progressing is structural limitations so for example if your bench press isn't improving and you're not training your triceps enough then your bench press won't grow mm. if you then need to look at your triceps and improve improve those to make sure that your bench press improves then yes you've got to do that if you're trying to do other exercises your biceps are week if you're trying to do a squat and your glutes are not firing as well as they should do you've got to pay attention to those so there's accessory lifts to increasing main lifts but you are very right when you work alongside it all most beginners or intermediate lifters should improve over time pretty quickly by training those those exercises even frequently yeah absolutely well amazing mark i'd um i, I will leave it here um we've asked some really good questions and i think we've We've covered some awesome things in this episode. I'd like to really thank you for your time. I do massively appreciate it. And if there's anything you'd sort of like to leave the listeners with at all, um, then go for it. But thanks again very much for, for yeah giving me a bit of your time today. Thank you. No, I really do appreciate it. And what I will say is, um, you know, 
I have an education program, and a lot of people think it's just for trainers, but a good percentage of people that come on it now are day-to-day people. Mm-hmm. We have people that just want to improve their physiques. Whilst we, we teach it at a biomechanical level, we teach people in a understandable level. I put camps on next one, 27th, 28th of May, here at M10 in Nottingham. Uh, obviously, I've got my eBooks. Uh, the Cover Model Chest Program teaches everybody about recruitment and, and everything, everything around developing your chest, whether you want it massive or whether you just want to improve it. But I would say, you know, watch my YouTube channel, guys. If you're not on my YouTube channel, Mark Coles M10, go on there, subscribe. I'm uploading videos every single week without fail on exercise, execution, nutrition, training, um, and, and ultimately, guys, if you commit to learning more, you will not fail to change. If you stagnate and think you know it all, people will overtake you. And I tell you what, my business and my life has improved through learning, not just by doing. And therefore, if you learn and do, you will make more progress. Um, you, my Instagram page, Mark Coles M10. Um, my Facebook page is Mark Coles Physique Coach. Um, and m10life.com, 250 articles. Uh, 500 articles 250 videos it's all for free if you just register with your email address so uh, plenty of ways to keep keep up and track with me I appreciate everybody for listening um, and give me a follow Um, I appreciate that yeah no amazing I will I'll make sure to link all those little bits in the info box below on the YouTube video Um, guys thanks very much for listening and take care I'll see you back in episode 31 thanks Mark thank you